0: So now I would like to invite our panelists up to um, the front. And I will introduce them um, while they are coming this way. So first we have um, Dominic Chase, who's the Z- Senior Vice President for Business Affairs and Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer for Ivy Tech Community College. Charles Johnson, um, President of Vincent's University. Anand Mari, Interim Provost and Executive Vice President for, I have to flip, Academic Affairs at Ball State University. Diane McKee, Senior Vice President for Finance and Administration and University Treasurer of Indiana State University. Dwayne Pinckney, Executive Vice President for Finance and Administration in Indiana University. And last but not least, Christopher Rule, Chief Financial Officer and Treasurer at Purdue University. Welcome to all of our panelists. All right, so here we go. In the most recent budget, the state of Indiana made the largest commitment to higher education funding in the state's history at $4.4 billion over the biennium. Can uh, any of you elaborate on this historic investment and what is the money earmarked for exactly?
1: So this is a was a historic year, and we are very grateful for the support we received uh, to continue to fund higher education in Indiana. And one of the things, of course, is context, and, and this was a great year for budgets uh, overall. Revenue per, uh, forecasts continue to exceed expectations, and we are pleased that higher education is one of the areas that the legislature continued to invest in. Uh, by context also, though with all the growth in in the budget, you know, higher education's actual percentage of the budget slipped from thirteen percent to about ten percent. So while it is it is historic in terms of its level, it is still relatively within the same range of where we've been over the time. Uh, we are certainly pleased with all the investments that have been made in capital projects, particularly the cash that's been invested there. And of course, you just heard about the great uh, investment being made here in Indianapolis with the legislature' legislature support to uh, fund the split of Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis into two distinct and uh, leading institutions. So a lot of unique factors this year, but we are definitely very, very pleased and honored to have that. And of course, there was also additional additional money to help us address some of the, the ongoing challenges we have to support our institutions. So it was a combination of factors, I think, that led to this historic support. Would
2: anyone else like to weigh in? Well, the the only thing I would add to that is the um, the Commission for Higher Education unveiled uh, a new outcomes-based performance funding uh, approach this year, and that is being phased in over this biennia and then subsequently in in future biennia, I, I would hope. Uh, there really was a uh, a good working relationship between the universities, uh, the General Assembly, and the Commission to develop those uh, those outcomes. That I, personally, I, I feel and I and I think not. To, Many of my colleagues would agree that should really help the universities improve our graduation rate, retention rates, and produce more graduates that stay here in Indiana. So we were very, not only were there base funding adjustments for higher education that help particularly help us. Uh, meet the the inflationary pressures that we feel the same as every other business and industry, but also uh, some funding that it will be devoted to improving student outcomes and student success.
3: Right. Um, in addition to what my colleague just said, um, I want to thank the General Assembly and issue for their support of Ball State University. Um, two things, uh, we talked about student retention, graduate retention is really important for us. 90% of our students come from Indiana. And over 80% end up staying in Indiana, so that's important for them to contribute back to the communities that we're where our mission is to serve. And the second is we're also using that, that funding to support renovation of buildings not new buildings, but renovation of buildings that have been on campus for over 40 years. So, as we know from work in student services, that if someone, if the students enjoyed their experience and the living conditions and so forth, and their academic. in buildings, they tend to stay. So those are the two areas that we've been focusing on at Ball State, and thank you again for that extra funding.
4: Yes, I'd like to uh, echo the comments of my colleagues and uh, also extend that appreciation to the General Assembly for for this support. Um, Your your question, uh, the wording, it it was very important and I appreciate the way that you worded the question. Uh, you used an important word and that word was investment. You you could have characterized it as expenditure in support of higher ed, that would have been accurate. Uh, but I think investment is a better uh, word to describe what this support from the General Assembly actually means uh, because this investment will have a return. Um, when we heard from Dan Hasler and Michael Huber about the exciting work in Indianapolis, Um, with the establishment of Purdue Indianapolis and Indiana University Indianapolis. um, The funds in the legislative session directly support the continued expansion of the important work of those two institutions and uh, the growth and the focus, the capacity to support STEM education and what that will mean and how that redound to the benefit of the state and the region around uh, those students in those disciplines and our ability to retain those students in those disciplines uh, and what that will mean for the state of Indiana. So I think investment was the right word and again we do appreciate the support and um, look forward to to the discussion.
0: So I know there's always talk about increasing tuition rates. Um, can any of you speak to the growth in tuition rates over time as compared to inflation, um, and how does this correlate to per-student costs?
5: It's an easy one for me to tackle because we haven't seen one in a decade, you know, on the <laughs> West Lafayette, uh, you know, campus. But you know, in seriousness, I mean, this is a, a big problem. To Abdul's question, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, is you know, how do we? Uh, you know, as institutions, as an industry, as organizations demonstrate, you know, we're delivering value, you know, to the folks who pay the bills, right? And that's students and families, that's taxpayers, that's donors and alumni. So, you know, we've tried to set forth a, a fairly simple equation, credit to uh, President Emeritus Daniels, with the sort of value equation, which has got quality in the numerator and cost affordability in the denominator, right? and trying to do everything we can to make sure that education is accessible, not only for today's students, but for students and families, you know, years and decades uh, from now. So we take that responsibility, you know, particularly amongst my team and the leadership team at Purdue, I think very seriously, uh, and with a very much a stewardship mentality. And, you know, Mitch always said it very well, he had a lot of great quips, you know, Dan and I were used to hearing frequently, but The one that sort of stuck with me with this one is, you know, listen, you've got two choices uh, in our world. You know, you can sort of spend what you want and then send students the bill, or you can say what's affordable to students and families and adjust your budgets uh, to that number. And that's what we tried to do at Purdue, is we think, uh, you know, we've got an affordable tuition that makes it accessible. Uh, not only for Hoosiers, but for significant demand from out-of-state students. How do we adjust our cost structure uh, to live within the means that they can afford? I think we've had a pretty good track record, uh, you know, certainly of doing that over the last decade. So that's the Purdue Commercial. Thank you for the question.
4: Thank you. Um, We we all, um, this is among the most compelling work that we have, and that is to doggedly pursue that value proposition for students and families. Part of that pursuit involves uh, making sure that we've done everything that we can to control our costs. And I think at Indiana University, we have been singularly uh, focused on controlling costs over the last three years. We've reduced our expenses, our operating expenses, by $180 million. We have uh, reallocated those resources to the highest priorities. Um, On tuition, we certainly recognize that tuition increases uh, present specific challenges for students and families and have um, uh, the potential to curb access. Um, Indiana University has a very uh, robust, I would say, an aggressive uh, financial aid practice um, and has committed significant sums of institutional aid to support students and families Um, the net price of Indiana University's uh, cost or tuition for undergraduate institutions places us uh, in the bottom third of the Big Ten and um, we think that is a an important accomplishment we'll continue to stay focused on that um, within the context of again making sure that we are doing everything that we can to protect that value proposition for students and their families
3: Right, and continuing that theme, I also want to point out that for all the public colleges and universities in Indiana, four-year colleges, in-state tuition and mandatory rates have fallen by 2.1% annually over the last decade. So that speaks to the affordability and the value proposition that all public colleges and four-year colleges in Indiana are doing. And in speaking of Ball State specifically, our rate of tuition increases has been below the itchy recommendation for the last 12 years in a row. We recognize that one third of our students are first generation, and 60% of our students who get financial aid, which is a lot, are Pell Grant recipients, and so that is a huge factor in what they, where they choose to go to college and also being retained there. So those, that's something that we
6: pay attention to, kind of like our colleagues over here as well. Yeah, I would just add. I think if you look at the data over the last uh, number of years, Indiana public institutions have done really well holding the line on tuition, and um, it, it's really a credit to all the institutions on cutting costs when you have pressure on the revenue side to be able to cut costs and hold tuition down. That's something we really focus on. But tuition is really just it is the primary component, but one component of the overall cost of education for a student we certainly uh, look at inflation adjusted tuition as a metric and we 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 want to stay below that in fact ivy tech is more affordable in terms of tuition than it was in 2015 when adjusted for inflation but we also work on the other expenses that students have like separate fees and in, in our recent tuition structure we rolled two separate fees a portion of one of them into tuition uh, I think we use the kind of the comparison to an airline when you when you go to book a ticket. No one likes to be surprised by the end of the process when you have extra fees that you didn't expect at the beginning. And we're really trying to ha- have students understand exactly what they're going to be paying um, from the very beginning. And the same philosophy kind of goes for textbooks, which, Uh, We started on this journey a number of years ago where we leveraged our size and purchasing power to become a bulk purchaser of textbooks on behalf of students. And what that means is that, that initially when we started that process, the per credit hour price to pay for that was over thirty dollars and and by leveraging our purchasing power and the volume we were able to get that down to nineteen dollars a credit hour and we covered it with, with HERF dollars the last two years but this academic year it's gonna be seventeen dollars a credit hour and then next year it will be sixteen dollars and fifty cents a credit hour. So at a time when inflation is actually increasing rapidly we're able to drive down the cost of textbooks on behalf of students, so it's really tuition is, is certainly something that gets our attention, but we we look at the full picture of all the costs that that students are going to have to pay to go to college.
2: Well, as all my colleagues have indicated, I I think we've all um, we've all really taken great pains over the last several years to minimize any increases in tuition. Uh, being very cognizant of the, the cost of students and their families. At Indiana State, we, uh, a year ago, two years ago, adopted the Indiana State Advantage. So if, you, if students and their families meet certain income requirements, uh, really the tuition, we backfill uh, whatever is needed in terms of to meet tuition costs once the federal and state aid are applied. Um, you know we there is the sticker price if you will of tuition and then I think more importantly maybe looking at what what students and their families actually pay. Uh, In in Indiana State we primarily serve uh, first-generation high uh, amount of Pell eligible students and so it's really important for us to make sure that we are we maintain affordability and that we're helping students and their families achieve their goal of a four-year degree. Great. So several of you have
0: mentioned costs and cost cutting, but what, in fact, are the most significant cost drivers for um, all of your institutions? And what innovative approaches, uh, you know, aside from what's already been mentioned, are you being are you exploring to reduce those costs?
4: It, it will come as no surprise that given the nature of our work um, and depending on you know we operate in the world of, of, of funds fund accounting mm-hmm. so if you if you focus on the general fund for example roughly 80 or 80 or, or more percent of those funds are cover compensation salary and benefits um, so we are uh, very heavily people invested and people are how we carry out our mission. So the cost drivers um, have to do directly with the cost of our excellent faculty, the researchers, and, uh, and our support staff to provide the best experience possible for, uh, for our students that is a primary cost driver now in the current inflationary environment which is cool fortunately for uh, for all of us uh, but it is still relatively high um, there are other factors that impinge on um, on us as well that have to do with the cost of insurance and utilities and those things but again it's our labor costs that is a primary driver for us if you are uh, for example at indiana university whether in Indianapolis, where we're growing our research enterprise, and in Bloomington, where it is more mature, but we continue to invest in it. Uh, those costs are also uh, drivers for research institutions: startup costs for faculty, equipment costs. Um, these are the things, uh, again, that go directly to the the value that value proposition that we talked about. It is not just spending for spending's sake. It is about creating the experiences. And the preparation for students to serve um, our economy.
3: So, following up on Duane's comment, uh, one thing that he, he, you know, he, I think, mine, made it minor, which is the utility cost, which right now at Ball State increased by 5.8%. And we have the largest geothermal system in the United States. Even then, our utility cost increased by 5.8%, which is quite a bit. So, those are things that are beyond our control um, that are market forces that are playing a role in what we do in terms of costs.
1: So related to what drives costs, and one of the challenges in higher education is we just don't have the ability to bend the cost curve the way other institutions or other types of industries have done, right? There is a limit to how well we can teach uh, students within a certain number, right? A lab or a class, particularly one that requires a lot of individual attention, has a capacity that is constrained by the quality. Uh, We have labs where students are operating on hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment that could also do harm to them. I don't want 50 people in the room where one instructor has to to oversee their safety and their quality of learning. So those are some of the challenges we have. We can't just keep piling more students into a classroom or lab to drive those unit costs down. The other thing is, we've tried some things to reduce those costs. I think, as an industry and across different institutions, at various degrees, and that is, you know, the adjunctification of the teaching core. We hire more part-time faculty. Those provide, you know, great, great opportunities for engaging people who may have professional experience, engaging people who may have other opportunities to help students make connections to industry or the fields they want to go into. But there's only so much of that that you can do as well. You still need a core faculty that's going to own the programs, own the relationships with the organizations that we interact with, as well as the curriculum, and making sure that we are staying abreast and delivering the quality outcomes that we need to. Different institutions also have different student needs. And so our, student, our organization and many others are, are heavily invested in student success support. Uh, we spend $2 million a year just in academic and student support activities to support our students because we're an open enrollment institution and we take students where they come, whatever needs they may have, and to try to provide every single one of them with an opportunity for success. Many of our programs, like many others, are heavily technology invested. And so we have to invest in new technologies and keeping those labs and, and those equipment up to date. You know, try buying millions of dollars worth of planes uh, at, 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 a, at a time and, and figuring out how much you have to spend on those types of things. You go but then those are necessary equipment to deliver the quality of the education, particularly with the safety pieces involved. And then finally, you know, there, there is certainly some growth in administration, but a lot of that growth in administration is also tied to the regulations that we are under, both federally, statewide, as well as accreditation requirements. There are many, many different places where we are having to, to put resources in place that are not directly impacting the learning of the students to comply with, with regulations that come to us unfunded by the federal government. And, and many of those are, are well intentioned, and they're providing good good outcomes in some respects. But they have to be funded in some way, and it has to come from the institutions themselves. I think with the sort of the panel you have, you know, assembled here today, you've got at least
5: within the organizations themselves, you know, a, a fair amount of you know, kind of cynics, you know, right? I mean. You see from an industry standpoint, these headlines of these places, quote, devour money. I'm like you're embarrassed and you should be embarrassed, you know, even if your institution isn't in uh, the sort of headline. And you know the, the jokes of you know how does a hired administrator get something done? They hire another administrator, you know, to sort of do the work, right? And And so you got to be vigilant, you know, on top of this, you know kind of every day, and sort of managing. And the discipline I think we've tried, you know at Purdue at least is, Focusing kind of as as chuck alluded to like what's the core mission, you know, right? And making sure whatever we're spending on academic instruction research and discovery outreach and engagement uh, That's where you're targeting your resources and you're spending a disproportionate amount of time in my world Making sure the administrative bloat that we take a bunch of arrows on you know doesn't land at our doorstep You know as institutions in Indiana, and I think you know collectively we've done you know, a decent job at that. There can always be more, but, you know, we put into place a lot of, you know, sort of reporting and metrics around uh, what's our student to staff ratio? What's our faculty to staff ratio? What's our academic core positions to our administrative positions and making sure those ratios get better uh, over time, not worse. Uh, but it's an uphill battle, you know, just in terms of, uh, as Dwayne described, you know, the, the sort of human component of it. I do think there's you know a few things that have been helpful to us. I think remote work has been a big one, uh, by the way. Like our ability to compete for talent and not have to have people come to uh, you know West Lafayette for jobs that they don't need to come to West Lafayette uh, for has been uh, you know an, an advantage uh, for sure. I was talking to my my healthcare friends earlier, and we put a big uh, plan in place several years ago to really go after. Uh, the university component of healthcare costs, which for us is about $200 million uh, a year, and that's direct agreements with providers, that's narrow networks, that's building our own health campus uh, to serve faculty and staff. So. You know, I think a big component of it, right, is you sort of hear, I think folks that don't do it right, it's like, oh, woe is me, there's nothing we can do about it. But, you know, it's our job to, despite all of the sort of macro factors, we got to manage it so it doesn't manage us and be on top of it and do everything we can uh, to keep those costs down. And and that's the responsibility we bear, uh, you know, as leaders of publicly funded institutions.
0: Um, so the media has reported recently on a study from the National Student Clearinghouse that indicates one million fewer people are enrolled in college than before the pandemic. Why do you think the public has grown increasingly skeptical about the value of higher ed?
5: It's you know one of these questions we you know sort of wrestle with you know a lot right and I think there's a lot of factors uh, you know strong economy has impacted. Uh, you know, particular institutions, you know, and, and a group of students who, like, why? Why would I spend all this money and incur all this debt and have no better economic outcome, uh, you know, right? So, so we've got to do, continue to, to do our job sort of selling the value. I mean, Dan described it well earlier. For a resident Hoosier to spend $40,000 on a degree in engineering and earn two to three times that coming out of college, like, we've got to describe that. We've got to sell that. We've got to make sure people understand that but I do think there's a dynamic I agree with what Dan said uh, and this comes from my you know role that of having Dom's job you know in the prior life of like there's gradations of all of this and it's not for everybody uh, you know right and it was in the Ivy tech of the world you'd say look at what these HVAC te- technicians can do look what these nurses can do uh, and look how affordable you know that outcome is for them so trying to do I think a better job uh, you know as a state of is it for you or not, but ultimately, you know, in my world, I'm a numbers guy. I'm like, what's your ROI? You know, individually, what's your ROI? Is it sort of a group of students? Is this a good value, you know, in terms of the outcome I'm going to get for the cost? Uh, you know, I'm going to pay, and we hope at Purdue, the answer is resoundingly yes for the vast majority, uh, you know, of our students, but we've got to continue to sort of tune that uh, and make sure we can fulfill that commitment to forward.
1: Chris, I couldn't agree more. One of the things I think we've, we've not done well as an industry or as a society is, is made this decision about pursuing higher education into an economic decision. We've turned it into a romantic decision about finding my life's mission, and my life's value, and my dream school, and all these things. And we've tended to, to add to that, that type of perception. But we really need to sit down and think, for, for many of us, this is probably one of the largest economic decisions we're going to make in our lives that have the biggest impact do we sit down and really look at this from an ROI perspective? Do we sit down and take a look at there are multiple pathways to get to the same outcome? Which ones are the best pathways from an investment standpoint? Uh, to that point, you know there, there are multiple, multiple ways to get to the same bachelor's degree through different institutions and in different ways. They don't have to all start at 18 and end at 22. And so we need to make sure that people are sitting down and looking at this from a, 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 a true investment standpoint
3: as they're looking at the return on that investment. Right, in addition to what we talked about, the communication and explain the value add of higher education for students, it's interesting that in, in doing research for this that over 90% of college graduates still think college graduates, college, a college degree is worth it. So that's one thing I've learned. And the second thing I've learned is my former colleagues at the New York Fed, our research showed that our, there's a value of over $1.7 million in their lifetime in the difference between a high school degree and a post-secondary degree. And a post-secondary degree anywhere from Ivy Tech all the way through a four-year degree. So those things, we have to try to get out how to get that message across to an increasingly skeptical audience, but.
5: Well, you gotta be you know, sort of careful in all of this, too, of the, the sort of pathways, right? If you look at sort of our numbers, for example, you know, 99 point something, you know, percent have no debt or pay their debt back on time. Uh, but the folks who don't are the folks who didn't complete you know right ultimately so sort of forcing everybody into this system where they may or may not be successful does a disservice to them and then to the institution you know who ought to be a little bit more responsible but, you know in that sense it's a heck of a problem because on the one hand exactly what you described like the higher the attainment as a community as a state you know the likelihood of sort of higher incomes higher standards of living et cetera, but recognizing the multiple paths to get there and how, and how each institution you know, sort of represented here can play their role, uh, you know, within that that sort of mix of institutions ultimately.
6: Yeah, I'd just add, I, I think um, <clears throat> it, it, it costs too much com- combined with more alternatives enabled by technology. And I mean, so many people go to YouTube to learn things now and they're learning things faster. And I don't think that... that you know as uh, as a consumer that we would want at this in this day and age a, a length of time to determine when we know something so folks kind of want to go at their own speed and their and and they want it to be flexibility and customized based on them and if they want to put it in more and get done faster you know how do we how do we make that work but but i really think um, i always come back to the, the supply and demand intersection, and when, when a price gets too high, you're going to have uh, lower demand. So I think I think that's something that we we uh, need to continue focusing on and continue to make it more affordable.
0: All right. So we have five minutes left. So this is a lightning round um, <laughs> for the last two questions. So if everybody, if everyone could answer on this one um, briefly. What opportunities do you see for increased partnership between the state and higher ed institutions?
5: Maybe I'll start. I, mean, I didn't weigh in sort of deliberately on the sort of you know economic appropriation question. You know, we're, we're grateful, but I see our impact, frankly, you know, in, in economic development and you know, Dan described kind of what we're doing in Indianapolis. But we got a lot of projects in the pipeline, you know, right now in the area of semiconductors and national security. Uh, and things like that, and you know, how do we play an outsized role, you know, as a university? Uh, Dwayne described it well. I mean, the ability of all this human capital, uh, you know, you have to attract other uh, really talented human capital who want to be part of that ecosystem. Uh, I think that's a big responsibility, you know, that we're trying to to shoulder uh, with the help of the state, and the state's been great, you know, in, in terms of partnering there. And I think really that sort of focus. Around how do we leverage the university talent uh, to attract more talent, more jobs, more investment? Uh, I see terrific upside, uh, you know, in partnering more with the state and the private sector together to accomplish that.
4: I think just greater intentionality around that link between the things that we do well and the things that are important to the state. Uh, I, I think it's really that simple and. Um, and Chris certainly described those areas that uh, where we have opportunity uh, where the state has strengths and where the institutions have strengths and how we can support that talent convening and more importantly that talent retention here in Indiana.
3: So, besides work, the workforce pipeline, and you know, we we produce the most teachers, educator, uh, principals, and superintendents at Ball State and, and anywhere in the country. And I think there's an opportunity to create a pipeline, kind of like what we do with IU Indianapolis, with that seamless transition from between K through 12 to higher ed institutions. And I think that's for something that would be beneficial for all of the state.
2: If the you know the state has a goal that sixty percent of, of Hoosiers will have some sort of post secondary credential, and that is critical, and it's critical to build the middle class, to build a middle class in the state, and also to have an educated workforce that uh, employers, industries that they're relocating to the state that they can can. Move into those positions and, and serve those those institutions. It's going to be you know, and, and my colleagues at, at Purdue and IU do tremendous work, and uh, they are great draw economic drivers for the the state and, and and provide a lot of research. But it's going to be institutions like Indiana State and Vincennes and University of Southern Indiana and Ivy Tech that really can help. Fill that raise that that college-going rate and really provide help provide an educated workforce for the state of Indiana and that's what Indiana State is is certainly we look forward and we want to partnership partner with the state of Indiana and however we can help do that
1: I agree with everything that's been said just one one thing I'd like to add is I think Indiana is blessed to have such diversity of institutions with different missions different strengths uh, sometimes that's difficult to manage at a policy level or at a state level so I think anything we can do to continue to refine some of the things that, that we're using as resources or funding sources or metrics that will focus on the institutional missions and build on those strengths because as we become better institutions the state overall becomes better uh, and so it would encourage us to continue building on some of the things that are happening to the Commission for higher education and the focus on the metrics and things like that
0: yeah. Um, and then the last, if, if uh, I guess maybe you guys can designate one person to answer this. Um, moving forward, how do you all plan to work collaboratively together to promote economic growth and increase enrollment and retention of Indian students? Well,
4: I guess I, I think I may be the newcomer here, so um, I, I'll hazard uh, into that question. I'll say this that um, I. I agree with my colleague that the state is very fortunate to have the mix of institutions that it has, Um, and they're all assets for the state of Indiana. Um, I I think it goes without saying that there are times when it's appropriate and and we will compete. Iron sharpens iron. Um, But within the context of collaboration, they are flip sides of the same coin it all redounds to the benefit of the state. We should be collaborating and partnering most of the time. We'll compete on Saturdays, <laughs> <laughs> on the fields. Well, we'll, see, we'll see. <laughs> <You're amazing. laughs> the gauntlet's thrown down. But, but we, again, it is all within the context of collaboration and that competition should not be for competition's sake. It is about what is important for the state of Indiana and its residents. And I think we will have many opportunities to collaborate across these institutions, and I'm very fortunate to be a part of it.
0: Thank you. Thank you to our panel. I want to thank um, all of our speakers today um, and our sponsors, Lumina Foundation and Indiana University, for their support of the event. Congratulations, Gretchen, um, for the Earl Ryan Award. We're just so thrilled to give that to you this uh, this year, and we want to thank you again for all of your dedication and support for the work of the Institute. And so a little plug before I let you go today. Uh, please join the Fiscal Policy Institute and Purdue Center for Regional Development on November 9th for a webinar on the state of broadband in Indiana and also save the date for the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute's Ideas Conference taking place on April 11th in Noblesville. We'll have more information on that available um, in the coming months. And you can learn more about the work of the Institute and how you can support us at www.indianafiscal.org. Thank you, and have a great rest of the day.